So you may have seen that the sermon title for, for this new series that we're starting today is Stranger Things in the Bible. And a lot of you have seen the show Stranger Things on Netflix. And if you haven't, it's, it's a show on Netflix that sets place in this fictional, you know, it's Hawkins, Indiana in the 1980s. Um, and it's about as an American plain Jane town as you can get. Kids go to the mall and they play on walkie talkies and they play D&D and it's Hawkins, Indiana, right? Um, and you think that it's just any old town in any old place in America. And what ends up happening is <laughs> there's a, basically a dimensional portal uh, that reveals things that are beyond what you can see in the real world. And I think that there's an interesting juxtaposition there in that you've got this town that you think you know and understand. It's just like any other town. And then this amazing stuff behind the surface is going on. And in, in a lot of ways, that's why I chose that title for the sermon series is because sometimes in the church, we do this thing with the Bible that we sort of domesticate it. And we think, well, here it is. It's this neat little book, and we do sermons on it, and we teach it in kids' church, and we do Bible studies, and we pretty much get this, right? We get the story, and we've got it on a neat box, and we put it on the shelf, and no problem. And I think that that does a disservice because the Bible deals with the story of God. And God is not a being that you can put in a box or comprehend fully or domesticate. And so we're dealing with some stories in this sermon series that are quite strange and should rightly shake us up and make us think and make us maybe even angry or make us uncomfortable. The sermon series comes from um, a, a series that Christy Wilson and the, the C1 group did two years ago when they walked through the Hebrew scriptures. That's the biggest part of the Bible, what we often call the Old Testament. And I, when they were done with that series, I mean, it's most of the Bible in a year. You can't, simply can't cover it all. And I was looking for a sermon series to do in the fall, and I said, I wonder if I could build a series based on their questions. And I was not surprised that there were some questions. I was surprised man, there's a lot of questions, and I was reading through them. I was like, I'm interested in these questions, and I bet you are too, and so that's how this series came to be, and there's no way I'm going to exhaust the questions this fall, and I'm sure it's something we'll revisit over the years together, so I'm just going to read the story that we're looking at tonight. It's in the book of Judges, which is in itself a weird book, and it is a weird story, and so I'm going to read it, and then we'll go from there. So, Get ready. Judges 3, starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord, in case you missed that part. <laughs> and he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated, literally smote, Israel. And they possessed the city of palm trees, Spoiler alert, that's Jericho. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a savior for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh 
under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, or a sleek man, and it came about that when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king said, Keep silent. And all who attended him left, and Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in the cool of his roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and then Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed in over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly. And the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule, shut the doors, locked the chamber behind them, and locked them. And when he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked, and they said, well, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited there until they became anxious, but behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now, Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew his trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. And so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down all the robust and valiant men and no one, I'm sorry, they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So we got an assassination, very detailed. Um, one commentator notes that this is very actually strange for the Bible to have that much detail. It's much more akin to the Iliad and the Odyssey than the Bible. Just a passing note that 10,000 dudes were killed. You know, just your typical Bible story. Is that in, that's not your kid's Bible? No, it's not in mine either. So what is this supposed to teach us? And why is this in Holy Scripture Let's just start with the story that maybe you've heard of. I, I never want to assume everyone knows all these stories, so I'm just going to start with a story that a lot of people have heard of, and that is the Exodus, right? The Israelite people were enslaved in, in Egypt, and they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered them. And he sent this guy Moses, raised him up from within, and Moses confronted Pharaoh and through a series of events led the Israelites out into the wilderness where they were on their way to the land that was promised to them, land that they actually used to occupy in Abraham's day, at least in part, in Palestine. And they're on their way and the Israelites sin and rebel against God in the desert and so he says, well, this generation can't go in, but the next generation can. And so this next leader after Moses was Joshua and Joshua was given instructions on how to take the land, A, how to take the land back, but B, 
not to intermingle with the people that lived there, the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Amalekites and, and these folks who were pagan, uh, not only idol worshipers, but they, a lot of them practiced child sacrifice. It was a completely um, depraved way of, of living, and he didn't want that mingling because he didn't want his people doing those things. God is a God of life. And the, the idea was that God would bring, through Joshua's leadership, bring the Israelites into Palestine, and that they would live after him, that they would worship him and serve him, and that their lives would be good and fruitful and glorious, and they would create art and beauty, and people would be looking at them and say, like, that's a good way to be. What, what, kind, of, what kind of stuff are you guys drinking? And we worship Yahweh, the living God, creator of heaven and earth, and then people would come say, yeah, I want to do that too, and they would learn the ways, and it would transform the world. And we see this in little snippets in the Bible, like where the Queen of Sheba, the most powerful woman in the world at the time, sees Solomon in his glory and says, I want that. I, I, I recognize your God as the, the ultimate God, and da-da-da, and we see it in just little, little snippets, but it never sticks. So Joshua starts off well, he cross, he takes, he takes Jer- Jericho, and he drives out a lot of different people, but he doesn't drive them all out, and he allows people within Israel to begin to intermarry and to take on the idols and the practices, including some child sacrifice of these other gods. And so by the end of the book of Joshua, we, we realize that Israel has not only failed to be faithful to God, but they have adopted many of these pagan ways of being that lead to death. And so you have the Israelites holding on to worshiping Yahweh like they might do prayers in their, in their worship, but then they've also got idols in their houses and they're doing all of these other practices. And this leads to, like I mentioned, child sacrifice, but also anytime you dehumanize people, you, they begin to treat women worse and children have no value and people of other ethnicities have no value and this is a downward spiral. And one of the things that we learn about God is that even though he's all-powerful, he will not force his way upon us. He respects our choices. And when Israel says, no way, or no thanks, we're gonna go on without you, God, God reluctantly obliges and says, have it your way until you learn your lesson. So he removes his protections from them, and the enemies of Israel surround them and invade and oppress and harass them. But God is faithful, And he's faithful to his promise to Abraham and he's faithful to his people so that when they cry out for rescue and they repent, he hears them and he rescues them. Enter the time of the Judges. Judges, the book that our story's in, is right after Joshua. The name itself is confusing for our 21st century ears. I know probably like me, when you hear the word judge, you think someone with a gavel and like a robe and they're in a law court and that's, that would be what a judge is in our time and culture. But in the context of, it, of this era, judges were more like tribal chieftains or tribal warriors. And this book of the Judges is a collection of stories about men and women whom God raises up as temporary saviors for their time and place. And he works in and through them to rescue his people when they cry out for deliverance or salvation from their oppressors. Now sometimes when people think of ancient Israel, we think of one unified people. Um, But let me just let me just frame this visually for you. And so Zoe's going to put the first picture up there. And this is going to be modern, um, modern like Middle East. So let's just get our bearings together. So you got Turkey and Iraq, and Saudi, and Egypt, 
And you, you kind of see just to the left of Iraq, you've got Jordan, Syria, and then that, let's zoom in one, Zoe. Yeah, you see Israel there now in relation to Jordan. Now zoom in one more, just to kind of, okay, that's, that's modern kind of Israel. And now Zoe, show us the picture with the tribal borders. Oh, that's a little bit harder to see, sorry about that. <laughs> um, You've got 12 tribes of, of Israel, and they're in one space, but they're all divided up separately, and they each have their own leaders and chieftains, and so when we say Israel rebelled, well, it could be like the people of Judah were particularly bad one decade, and so some people were invading them, or Manasseh, or Reuben, or, and, and so when we read these stories in the book of Judges, we're not to think that like, these battles are happening over all of Israel, but usually it's on one border, or with one tribe, or in one area. There's no central government, there's no phones or internet to pass information quickly. So in these early stories, Israel's connected by a common history, and a common connection to Yahweh, but geographically, they're isolated. So in the book of Judges, when we read about different epic stories, they're often taking place in localized settings. And the book of Judges as a whole is sad, and it's violent. It's, it, 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 it's the history of Israel's downward spiral. The tribes become corrupt, they adopt the pagan practices of their enemies, and many of their leaders, even many of the judges that God raises up to deliver them, forget who God is, forget what his character is like, and what holiness looks like. The story of Ehud occurs early in the book, and believe it or not, it's not even close to the worst of the stories of the judges. But it's one example of people sinning, crying out, and God raising up an unlikely savior. If you read every episode in the Judges that has any kind of details in it, you'll notice that the judge or the savior God raises up is very unlikely. It's not who you would pick. And he rescues his people through these, peace, through these people. But the peace that lasts after they rescue, after they bring salvation, it never lasts. And people always return to their wicked ways and it gets worse and worse. Now for the rest of our time, we're going to explore the story, which is by itself a work of literary art. If you're a literary person or an English major or something like that, you will want to just live in the Ehud story if you can handle the violence, because it has all kinds of treasures in it. The way the story is told has captivated literary scholars, but it's more than an epic story. It's an honest and sobering look at what happens when people walk away from God in whose image that we are all made. Now, that's a lot of backgrounds, but that's kind of necessary for these types of stories. Now let's get down to the actual story. And we're gonna start back in Judges 3.12, where we read that the Israelites, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. That's all one sentence, and you get this double bookend just to drive it home that they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's the first thing the narrator really wants to drive home, that that is the context of the story. 
But the second thing, weirdly, is that the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of the Moabites, and whatever that means. Because in ancient theological writing, it could mean that God strengthened him, like raised him up and empowered him, or it could mean that God took his protection away from Israel, uh, which implicitly then strengthens their enemies. But either way, God is seen as an active part of what is taking place. And one other detail. The one who rose up against the Israelites is Eglon, king of the Moabites. Now this is significant because Moab and Israel have a long and complicated history. Moab, the original Moab, so Mo- Eglon is the king of the Moabites, but they're named after a dude named Moab. And that guy is the son of Lot, who is Abraham's nephew. Heard of Abraham, right? The original patriarch of Israel. And he had a nephew named Lot, And Lot ran away from Sodom and Gomorrah and went and lived in a cave, and he had two daughters. And Lot was lame, and he did, not like lame, like he was just a bad dad, and he didn't provide for his daughters, like he didn't get them out and and have them uh, meet husbands, and so in an act of supreme depravity, they get their father drunk and have relations with him, and they have children, and one of those children is Moab. So there's a nice family history for you. See, this is stranger things in the Bible. Just the rabbit hole goes deep. Um, (laughs) So yeah, so this baby of incest Moab is related to Lot, who is related to Abraham. So technically the Moabites who now are attacking Israel are relations distantly to the Israelites. And in his grace, by the way, God tells Israel in Deuteronomy, don't go to war with the Moabites. That even though they're not part of the people of Israel, You guys, through your sin, made a connection with them, and I am now going to protect them. Don't mess with them. Now, you can do a deep dive of the Moabites, and if you're nerdy and you want to, it it reveals a lot of interesting things. Um, I just will say this one more detail, though. It is the Moabites who, in the book of Joshua and Numbers, try to destroy Israel. And they do that, like you did in the ancient world, you called in a sorcerer (laughs) to spout curses on your enemy. And so they called this guy named Balaam, you remember Balaam's ass, right? So all the kids like that story because it says ass in it, but um, Balaam was a sorcerer, well-known guy. He's documented in in sources outside of the Bible too. He's a real historical figure that uh, other ancient peoples write about. Very interesting guy, and so Balak, who is the king of Moab at that time, hires Balaam to go curse Israel, and God doesn't let him. He gives him other words that actually bless Israel. So the point is that Moab has had Israel in their crosshairs for a long time. To sum up, Eglag, everyone say Eglag, so we're not getting these names straight. Eglag, that's the king of Moab in our story. All right, we got him straight. It's like yeah, it's like read, if you get into the, the Rings of Power thing, I'm reading, rereading the Silmarillion to c- catch up. There's so many family trees. I'm totally nerd. I've lost you. Okay, Eglag is the guy in our story. He's the warlord, the, the, the leader of Moab, and he's gone up north of his land and across the Jordan River, and he's taken the city of Palms, which is ancient Jericho, and that's in Israel. And he set up shop there. And he's saying, kind of like what Putin is doing in Ukraine, he's trying to annex that spot. And he's saying, that's mine now. And by the way, you're going to have to pay me tribute. Okay, you're going to have to pay me 
to be alive in this land. And for 18 years, Eglon oppressed the Israelites in that region, and part of the way that that would play out is basically through massive taxes on grain and livestock and trade. And so basically, Eglon made himself um, fat on the best of Israel, while they had to eke out an existence without getting ahead. They would just barely survive year after year, and you better hope there wasn't a famine because the bulk of any excess was going as tribute to Eglon, this foreign warlord from Moab who was in their land. And this creates the occasion for our story in Judges 3. Verse 15, a key verse in the narrative. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a savior for them, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. What a sentence. 18 years of oppression and finally Israel cried out to the Lord? I don't think that means that they waited 18 years in patience and said, you know, this is fine. 18 years we've had it though, we're finally gonna cry out to the Lord. I bet you they were complaining and frustrated and angry and sad. In the Bible, when you hear people crying out to the Lord, that is a way of saying that the Israelites, who were serving idols and false gods, lifted their voices to Yahweh, to the God who brought them out of Egypt and promised them the land, that that they cried out for help, that they put their trust in the promises of the God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and passed down through Moses and Joshua. That's what crying out to the Lord means. It is a statement of faith in God, not just, God, help us, but like, God, we have stepped on your promises And now we're putting our faith in you as a gracious and merciful God. Hear us. And when they cried out, God did hear them. And he raised up a savior for them. And who is this savior? His name is Ehud. And then we get this interesting detail about him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was left-handed. And here's what's interesting about the word Benjamin, is that it means something like son of my right hand. Benjamin son of my right hand. Well, that's interesting because Ehud is from Benjamin, the tribe, but he's left-handed. And left-handed people, who are our lefties out here? My oldest daughter, beautiful Sophia, is a lefty. We've got, yeah, look at all the creative left. We've got double McFarland Sarah's downstairs, I think, but Ian represents two. Yeah, we've got some solid lefties. All right, but lefties in the, uh, in the ancient world were discriminated against pretty heavily. Uh, And many of you lefties, even today, know that we live in a right-handed world. Uh, Just a generation or two ago, my dad went to Catholic parochial school, and I remember them hitting, like he told stories of the nuns hitting him, right? When he uses his left hand, he had to learn how to write with his right hand, because that's what good people do. You use your right hand. But even today, like, there's acceptance for left-handed people, but how many left-handed desks are there in a typical classroom, right? There's like two. What? Can opener, yeah, I mean, just cry out to the Lord, Elizabeth. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll be here all day, lefty. Just yep. suck it up now. But it's worse in the ancient world than not having left-handed scissors on every desk because being left-handed was not seen uh, as a gift, um, but as he, in fact, most people weren't described as left-handed they were described as people whose right hands didn't work. Isn't that interesting? 
That's the description here. And in fact, in Hebrew, there's two ways to say it. There is a way of saying left-handed, and we do get that in the story, but the way he's described here is Ehud, the Benjaminite, whose right hand doesn't work, or whose right hand is bound. So we have... um, I forgot to say that being left-handed would also disqualify someone from holy service in some circumstances, even serving in the temple sometimes. And we have tension in the story already. This savior that God raises up is left-handed. He would be suspect in the world's eyes, but God chooses him to deliver people. But there's more more to the story, of course, than the left-handed savior that meets the eye. Because in the Hebrew text, it doesn't just say, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't say that he's left-handed merely, but Ehud is a man whose right hand is bound up at his side. And one theory is that Ehud may have a deformed right hand, so his right hand doesn't work, so he's left-handed by default. That is a theory that, that has some run out there in biblical scholarship land. But another theory supported by a passage in Judges 20, so now we have uh, evidence in the same book that we're dealing with, so I think that's pretty weighty. It suggests something different, because in that passage, the tribe of Benjamin is famous for all of its warriors being exceptionally fierce warriors. Benjamin's one of the smallest tribes, but pound for pound, they were like the Switzerland of, of, of armies, right? Like They just punched above their weight class all the time. And but in particular, even among all of the elite warriors of Benjamin, the most elite warriors of Benjamin were 700 men whose right hands were bound. And they learned how to use their left hand, and the theory is this, that those warriors actually were right-handed, but that they bound their right hand so that they could use their left hand just as well. And the text in Judges 20 says that they could hit a hare, a rabbit, with a slinging stone with their left hand and not miss. And this is a huge military advantage when all of your sword play, your parry, and your blocking is against right-handed people. And so if you're a lefty, if you ever box in southpaws, or if a left-handed pitcher, usually it can be more crafty when the majority of your batters are right-handed, it can really be a surprise to people. And so they were more deadly that way. So the idea might be that Ehud is trained, well-trained, and that he had his right hand bound on purpose so that he approaches Eglad, actually with two hands, that worked just fine. But when they go to check for his weapon, which would normally be on the left hip, it's not there. And he has a special weapon that he's crafted himself, a double-edged dagger that's a cubit long. And the word for cubit there, there's a cubit from elbow to fingertip, but it's a short cubit, elbow to knuckle, which is interesting Hebrew little nerd out moment there, but it's a little shorter one than normal. And so it fits on his thigh, and he's able to draw it with his left hand and... and poke people with it. (laughs) The genius of the story, the way it's written, is that it leaves the details ambiguous, and we're to hold two truths in our mind on purpose at the same time. One, that God works through a lefty, and two, that this lefty was cunning and capable, whether his was really left-handed, whether he had a deformed right hand or whether he was trained to use his left. It doesn't really matter. It just so happens that in the story, it's the time of year to pay the tribute to the Moabite oppressors. And this would have been 
so hard to swallow. The Israelites work all year to provide for their families, and then they have to take a large percentage of their goods and give it to this Eglon character. And this presents an opportunity because Ehud is chosen to bring the tribute to King Eglon. So imagine this, Ehud is the guy, he's like the officer in charge. He's got all of these servants with him who are carrying the tribute. They've got the grain and the oil and the livestock and they go all the way to uh, what is now Jericho and Eglad is there and they present this tribute. And uh, we already learned that Ehud makes the special dagger, puts it on his right thigh. He's going to security, right, like at the TSA, and uh, for whatever reason, they only pat down the one side, and he's able to smuggle this thing in, right? So he and the envoy deliver the tribute to the king and his officials and everything. Everything goes well, and they're all leaving, and he sends his men on ahead. And he gets to where the statues and the idols are, it says in the text, and then he turns around. He says, hey, king, I got a secret for you, a special message for you. And this king plays on his hubris. He's like, oh, I like it. Do you like a special message? We all like to feel special. And so the king, ooh, a special message, he sends away his bodyguard. He tells, in fact, Ehud, be silent. He doesn't want anyone else to hear the message. Be silent. He sends away his men. Then they go to the king's throne room, the upper chamber in the cool. And off to the throne room is a bathroom, but that's neither here nor there just yet. And they lock, you know, they shut the doors. And so now in this private room, the king's throne room is Ehud and Eglon, the warlord, the king. The king must have sat down. And Ehud says, I'm ready to tell you the message. And it says that he stands up. And when you stand up, of course, you reveal your vulnerability. And he comes and whispers to him, I have a message for you from God. And then reaching with his unexpected left hand, he draws his special weapon from his right thigh and drives it into the king so far, and I know this is gross, but the handle disappears in the king. And he leaves it there like a cork. And his flesh wraps around the handle of the blade And Ehud takes his leave. He probably says goodbye to the guards. We're done in there. He's just, you know, he's just, he locks the door and leaves, and he gets a head start. And now, this is really gross, but it's in the Bible, so I can say it. Sometimes when people die, their muscles relax, and the refuse came out. And so now, his guards are outside of a locked door in the king's throne room with the bathroom off to the side, And they think, he's in there a long time. (laughs) But it smells like he's doing his business. Says that in the text. I'm not making that up. (laughs) They smelled the refuse. And then they begin to grow anxious. And then they get a key. And then they unlock the door. And they open it up. And they see that their king had fallen to the earth. Literally. It's the ground. He's dead. So it's a double meaning. He's fallen to the earth. But he's also fallen from his high throne to the ground. From he thought he was superior to Yahweh and his people, but now he's fallen to earth. And it mentions again that Ehud on his way out passes those idols as if to get our thinking that, no, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is over these pagan gods. And Ehud goes out. And then what happens is the people freak out because this is a mobile outpost. They are in Israel. 
And Eglad, this warlord, has now fallen, and their people are in disarray. And the escape route from that would be to cross a ford over the Jordan River. You, you can't just cross anywhere. There's certain fords in the Jordan River where you can shallow enough to cross. The Israelites pre-staged themselves there. And then they defeated the Moabites and had victory for 80 years. And that's the story of Ehud. And that doesn't tell us why it's in the Bible. <laughs> it is so gross and weird. I think it's a longer conversation, definitely, but we have to get out of the mindset that the Bible is our instruction manual or that it is a book of stories to give us examples of how to live. Most of the stories in the Bible, if you look closely, deal with severely flawed men and women who lie and cheat, and kill, and show greed, and arrogance, and Ehud is really no different. He is a man who is trained to kill. The Bible doesn't ever tell us to emulate the people in the stories. What the Bible is doing is revealing the faithfulness of God. Just think of what kind of God would be faithful to Abraham who twice nearly threw the promise away because he lied about his wife when he was in danger for his life and he said, oh, she's just my sister. Or think about the God that would be faithful to Jacob who lied and stole and didn't honor his own father Isaac. That God would be faithful to Joshua and the Israelites after they failed to follow simple instructions and warnings about uh, idolatry. It is God's faithfulness that is the hero of these stories. God does not choose these judges like Ehud for their impeccable moral character or because they fit the image of the righteous person. Not at all. All of these judges are screwed up. They're all left-handed, if you will, in their character. Uh, but God works with what he has, and he works through the people who are available to him. God doesn't at all condone this violence, but in the violent world of tribal chieftains, that's what there was to work with. So the first lesson is that if there are lessons to take from this horrible story, it's that God is faithful to his promises and to his people. He hears their cry when they turn to him in humility and in faith, and that hasn't changed. So take heart. But the second thing is that this story, as strange and as violent as it is, points toward our need for Jesus, our ultimate Savior. Let's revisit a few key themes in the story. Ehud, as we already noted, is about as unlikely a Savior as you could imagine. He's unknown before this story. He's from no family of significance. He's born in Benjamin, the smallest tribe. He's left-handed. He's an outsider. And who is he going to kill? Well, he's going to now kill the king of Moab, the warlord who was the oppressor. Many people seem to think that the king in the story was fat. That's one English translation in the Bible. Um, that he was sort of fattened up on the tribute of his enemies. But as scholars like Lawson Stone suggest, that doesn't fit the context or the language uh, used in the sentence. First, the story is set in the historical timeline of early Iron Age I. 
It's just after the fall of the Bronze Age, and many of the Bronze Age empires in Palestine had all broken up. There were no kings and dynasties in that land at this time. Anyone that's called king at that time in Palestine in the Bible is a chieftain or a warlord or like a thug or a, a gang leader. That, that's what these people were. There are no family dynasties. This was survival of the fittest. Whoever could win in a fight would be the ruler of their people. So there's no way that this Moabite king could just be some obese man who could hardly move around like he was easy pickings for Ehud. He would have been, if he was really out of shape and obese like some people think, he was easy pickings for the next guy up in the, uh, you know, the up and coming junior uh, in the Moabite people. Like that's, warlords did not last long for good, good reason. It was a rough world. The king was probably a specimen of physical power. In fact, the text says his fat covered uh, the handle of the dagger, but even the most fit people have fatty tissue around their interior organs. There's adipose on the inside of your skin. It's just, and if you drive that thing up there far enough, sorry for the graphic, it's already graphic, um, your skin's gonna come around it, okay. Furthermore, the Hebrew word we often translate as fat is usually, most often in the Bible, is rendered sleek. It's the word when Joseph has his dream and he has the cows that are all skinny and decrepit and then he has the sleek cows. It's the same word. Those cows are not fat. They're healthy. Uh, in offerings that are presentable to God, you can't have some disgusting fat animal or some skinny little sick animal. It has to be a sleek animal, a healthy animal. That's the word that describes King Eglad or Warlord Eglad in this sentence. Now here's another interesting tidbit. That word Eglad, his name, it means little bull. Little bull. So on a surface reading of the story, Ehud comes to present an offering and one assumes that the offering is the tribute to the king of Moab. But on a deeper reading, it might suggest that Ehud is coming to present an offering, but the offering is to the Lord, and the offering is not tribute, but the little bull, Eglad himself, who is a sleek and acceptable sacrifice. And as we know, the sacrifice of Eglon, little bull, only serves to deliver, deliver Israel temporary peace. It would not change the course of history or offer long-term salvation, and it definitely would not transform people's hearts. But, of course, there's another man who was born into obscurity, born into a little con inconsequential town in Bethlehem, one whose ancestors traced, are traced to David, who's the son of Jesse, who was the son of Obed, who was the son of Ruth, who was a, anyone know? A Moabitess. That's interesting. Jesus is the one who is linked to the Moabites as well. Jesus is the one who laid in a feeding trough of animals, and instead of Jewish religious leaders and Roman royalty, he's celebrated by dirty shepherds and pagan magi from a far-off land. In fact, probably from Babylon. Wheels within wheels. He's conceived out of wedlock, at least to the eyes of the beholder, to a young woman and a carpenter. We don't know what hands Jesus' dominant hand was, but he was as left-handed as you could get in terms of people whom you might expect 
to be the savior of the world. And when Jesus begins his ministry, as we heard earlier in the scripture reading, he declared, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The book of Judges is horrible because it reveals the truth about how corrupt human beings can really be without God. It is disgustingly honest about our need for a savior. And in Jesus, we get one who doesn't use violence, but instead takes the hatred and violence of the world on himself that we might have life. Would you pray with me? Living God, thank you for (laughs) hearing our cries for rescue and for help, for being faithful. Thank you for a set of scriptures that is so brutally honest with what humanity can be like without you. And I so appreciate that you're the kind of God who doesn't, who doesn't do what we do. Who doesn't use violence to rescue, but who absorbs the violence of the world, who absorbs our violence, our rebellion, and instead grants us grace and forgiveness and new life. Lord, help us receive it. Amen.